of the most complicated book in the Bible. I'm not sure that's a great way to start the sermon, but uh, do know that that's uh, what we're stepping into today as we come to Revelation chapter 11. Before I read this passage, I want to remind you, especially if you're visiting with us, or you haven't been here for all of our sermons, there's some things that have been guiding us by way of the material that we've looked at together in Revelation. First of all, the book of Revelation is piled up with symbols and images, and even John himself often stacks them right on top of each other, and it's difficult to pull them apart many times. And yet he's intended to present to us kind of the beautiful truths, the multifaceted truths of the whole of Scripture here in the last book of the Bible. And so as we think about this, we want to read the book primarily in a symbolic way. That's what I've said before. There are a lot of folks that have sold a lot of books, and I got a pamphlet just this week from my daughter who serves tables down there in Chattanooga, and a lady gave her a pamphlet. want to make sure she did not have the mark uh, 666 on her forehead. Uh, They're trying to make numbers out of everything in the book of Revelation. It is fundamentally intended to be observed symbolically. And we'll see a good bit of that today as we look at chapter 11. Another thing we want to remember that this uh, section we're in today, as we were in the, uh, the seals where the seven seals were described, um, is, being, is describing the time in which Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and how he will come back again one day. And so it is intended to not be seen chronologically from Revelation, particularly 4, 5, all the way through to the end. We're seeing it uh, in a way that is, once again, as I've described, the same story being told from different camera angles. And we see this repeated in, in many ways. Even like today, we find ourselves in Revelation 10 and uh, 11, but we were in 10, and it's a pause, it's a, a commercial, it's a slowdown between 6 and 7 that happens each time. And it is a little odd when you think of your gender, read it chronologically, but if you stop and think, this is helpful to see, I'm getting a different view about the same event where seventh seal was the end, the seventh trumpet is the end. We're just getting a different view each time we look at it. That's how we're looking at this last book together. Another thing to remember is that the design of this book, that is the book of Revelation, is not given uh, to us in in little details. We're, we're, We're so concerned as a data society Uh, anymore and I think that's at the heart of all of us who want to know why God tell me all the details God Uh, because so many have taken this book and have turned it into a road map of determining global future events in the future and as if we could turn on the television whatever your favorite one happens to be and you're going to find like in today's passage these two strange Figures who are breathing fire on the streets of Jerusalem. That's going to be on the evening news. No. We're not to understand this book that way in terms of giving us a literal roadmap. It's, it's giving to us 
what I want to make about this point here is that the book of Revelation was offered up originally not to you, not to me. It was written to the early church to be for them a comfort in the midst of all that was going on. And if we are persuaded that the seals and the trumpets were sounded and they began to be sounded and uh, undone even there at the early church, they're in the midst of these things that we're talking about today that we're still in the midst of until the end comes. Because it's intended to be an encouragement to the early Christians first and foremost. And you need to have that in your head rather than What's tomorrow going to hold and how am I supposed to figure out this particular little number? Do you think the people in the early church were concerned about the numbers? They knew their Old Testament. They didn't really care about those numbers. They needed some encouragement. That's been a guiding principle all the way through our study together. So as we know where we are, just to remind you of where we are, that John is watching these seven angels They've blown six of them already as we come to chapter 10 and 11. And we are waiting for the seventh blast. In each of those trumpet blasts, there's really in there a gracious warning to the world to wake up. And we've said that just about every week. Wake up if you do not know Christ and you're here. Wake up. Wake up. That's where we are in the midst of this warning that's being sounded out against sin. So we've considered the first six trumpets in 10. And today we come to chapter 11 and really the story, the, the pause, if you will, goes all the way through to verse 14. And then we will look oh so briefly, but we'll talk more of that in the coming weeks. But um, the seventh trumpet will sound today, the third woe. And so hear God's word. And as you're hearing it, I, I want you to remember what you confessed just a little bit ago where it says, Almighty God, we confess how hard it is to be your people. You've called us to be the church, to continue the mission of Jesus Christ in the world. 10 and 11, just as chapter 7 was intended to encourage the people, particularly in these words, are to be for us a picture again as we talked about last week of how John was commissioned as an individual uh, in terms of preaching and the listening and the going forth in that way. Chapter 11, you can kind of look like look at it as a, a commissioning of the church or giving instruction or direction to the church, the early church and this church and the church that exists until Christ comes again. And they're intended to be words for us that we might find encouragement in our calling to be the church in the world. Hear God's word. Chapter 11, Revelation. John speaking. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, 
and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh trump angel seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying we give thanks to you Lord God Almighty who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. Grant to us, Father, by your kindness, through the work of your Spirit, minds to listen, hearts to apply these encouraging words, directions to us as the church, that your people would find themselves living out their calling as the body of Christ. 
Grant to us these things, Lord, and that by your spirit we would be all the more captivated um, in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is my desire, and I trust it is yours, that from the reading of the word of God itself, that you would find encouragement if you were the early church. Certainly in these words, they took great encouragement as they found themselves losing loved ones, friends, because they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not believe anyone here, when you leave this week, will anticipate having one of your friends on the road not being here next week because they were murdered, because they believed in Jesus Christ. That's how they lived, week to week, anticipating God's word to be for them a blessing to their souls. And so may God do this for us as we, the church, would find encouragement in our calling as we are commissioned here at Christ Church um, to serve God in faithfulness, obedience, and love to Jesus. Some things we need to see, and they are um, before us there. The first thing you need to know as we exist as a church, as that early church existed in verses 1 and 2, that it is saying here that God will protect his church. What do you mean? Well, as you read these first few verses, all they're doing is measuring what in the world is going on there where John has been given a stick, a rod, to measure the uh, temple. This is an imagery. The early church would have known this came right out of Ezekiel 40 and how Ezekiel was prophesying and how the temple is to be measured. Well, likewise, here is John portraying this measurement that's going on. And some would read this, interestingly enough, this, this is a to be literally understood and that there's going to be a physical temple that is not yet built in Jerusalem. And one day um, they believe this chapter is saying that there's going to be an actual literal rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem in the modern capital city of Israel. If there are those who are here that believe that, I say this very cautiously, but hear me well. I think they are completely, and you are completely uh, misunderstanding the point of these first two verses. It ignores the symbol-laden apocalyptic literature that we're dealing with. It really does. Because the emphasis of the New Testament is not on a literal temple any longer. Yes, Old Testament, that was the practice. It was all intended to look forward to the Savior. Hebrews wants you to know that. Because the emblem of the church today is to be understood as Paul wrote to the Corinthians. You remember that passage. Verse 16, do you not know? You are the temple of God. That's what is being said in Corinthians. And so when you begin to read temple here in Revelation, think not a literal physical structure, but rather you, the church, is the temple of God. And so you understand that. If you 
believe that and will step into that. He's not measuring the outer courts, the text says. That's been given over to the nations. And so in a similar sort of way that we are in here and they are out there. There's not a measurement going on, John's saying to us this morning. But there is a measurement that is taking place here. The temple of God, the people of God is being measured. Outside, the nations are trampling, it says in the text, the holy city. <laughs> the world doesn't like us. And they're, it's not because they don't like this building. Even though some churches, interestingly enough, are building buildings that don't look like churches because they're wondering whether or not the church is going to like them if they build a church that looks like a building, uh, a, a building that looks like a church. Come on. It's you they don't like. Whatever your structure looks like, that's what the world doesn't like and will trample upon you is what John is here in his vision understanding. And so this measuring here is, is really God's way uh, through the pen of John of saying, I'm taking full inventory of my church. It's mine. And I'm going to do a full inventory of the temple of God. Those who are his, he's counting. And you think about that. When you think about God counting something, there is to be understood and comprehended in that that when he measures, when he counts, it is secure. We take great confidence in knowing that he is the one who fits us together, making us living stones, built upon the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we understand is happening here. And so you say, well, what are we, you just said the point is, is that God will protect us. It's the same idea in chapter 7 where it was there described again how the people are sealed. They are protected. And there is to be seen and understood this, this spiritual house that God has put together that though the nations are raging against the temple of God, He is the great protector. And the beauty of saying that, that the gates of hell will fall down before God's church and cannot stand against her though they are upset at the church of God and particularly again not a structure they can get mad all they want they can write on buildings they can throw eggs at the walls it's you they don't like because buildings don't say anything And so neither death nor life nor rulers or present powers anything can separate us from the love of God that's the beauty of being in the temple. Not literally. But to be a part of the family of God. And so if you're the early church, you need to know, and the modern church needs to know the same thing, that the Lord God Almighty is the great protector of His temple. He's the keeper of it. And they're going to rage all day long, but we're not counting them, and they're going to be kept out from us with regard to undermining the ultimate work of the church because God himself is at work in building his temple. Though we are his instruments, he's the one who builds his church. That's the first thing we need to know by way of protection, that God by his power, saving his people, redeeming his chosen, is the great protector of his people that he has numbered. 
And so we understand that. Then the second point, the longest point, hardest point probably to understand is this one. God will direct the church's proclamation of his word. You see that from 3 to 14, basically. Let me just make some observations, and this is the best way to understand this point, I think. What about these numbers here? These nations are are trampling upon the temple, John says, for 42 months. 42 months, okay. In, In the context of the world that's kind of raging against the church, he sends, does Jesus, two witnesses. And we'll get to them in just a moment. But he's given them authority to do ministry for 1,260 days. So the nations are raging for 42 months. Um, They're going to do ministry for 1,260 days. You begin to realize that you think about those numbers uh, with regard to three and a half years that will be described, 42 months, 1,260. They're all the same. They're exactly the same idea. And so throughout the scriptures, in in Numbers 33, for example, there are 42 encampments uh, showing forth God's uh, taking his people through this wilderness travel. Luke 4, there was three and a half years of ministry that Elijah had done uh, when it didn't rain. That's echoed in our passage. Daniel 7 uh, also talks about the beast there, but then later on in chapter 12 of Daniel, there's a figure that kind of raises his hand like last week where there was a raising of the hand. Daniel here is describing uh, in that section times times, and half a time, three and a half years. All of these over and over in Scripture, just know this. And don't get out your calendar and start going, well, we started going, we're going to get to... That's not the point. Have I said that? I'm saying it again. It's not the point. The point of these numbers here is to help us see from Scripture that it is a period of time used to describe a season of trial. A season of trial in the life of God's people. Three and a half years is the symbol between the resurrection of Christ and his return. Three and a half years. It's three and a half years because it's half the perfect number. When he does come again, it will be perfect. And so we began to look at these numbers. We understand the numbers are are symbolically saying this is a season that is describing Again, this incomplete, not yet completed time until the Lord comes again that we're living in. Take that for the numbers. But then we move on and it says about these witnesses. And I've already made reference to the church in the first point. But I believe the two witnesses here, in short, are, uh, is to be understood as the church. Well, you mean we're not supposed to figure out, is it like some guy coming with another one of his buddies and, and then they're going to be... Now, let's think about this for a moment. There's going to be this period of suffering and persecution after the tomb is empty and then Christ is going to come back and he sends these two witnesses. As you think about this for just a moment, what was required in the Old Testament to make the truth? You had to have two witnesses. And I believe that's in part the beginning to validate the point here. And like John himself back in chapter 10, these two witnesses were sent to prophesy for this period of time. And God is protecting his church. We understood that in one and two. But 
they are going to be proclaiming the word of God during this, pe this period of time from when Jesus left until he comes again. So you begin to think about these two witnesses that he might send out. Who has Jesus sent out into the world today to accomplish his purposes? Even after he left, it began, he established his church. And so we need to see this point about these two witnesses as being the church. Because it's being driven home, this idea of the church, when you have all these veiled references here in 4 to 6, for example, where Zechariah in chapter 4, where you got Zerubbabel and Joshua, and they're like olive trees. The people of God have come back from captivity, and they're all in a turmoil, and yet they are described as, as balm or oil that keeps the lampstand going for them. These are two in the Old Testament that were like oil to God's people. And in a similar way, the church is to be a place who is described in chapter 1 of Revelation as being a lampstand of encouragement to the people of God that they are like oil to them. A beautiful picture in the scriptures of a balm that is needed for a soul that is troubled. That's what the church is to do. And so you begin to see that here in this imagery driving the point home, not just there in Zechariah, that this imagery is found also with Elijah and Moses in 2 Kings where the fire is being brought down from heaven uh, for those who oppose God's word. That's what happened in 2 Kings. You see that language there of what's going to happen to those who oppose God's church and the spokesmen who stand and preach the word of God. Fire will come down from heaven. So we're not looking for an individual. We understand this is to be the church and her proclamation as we understand it. And that's why Elijah would later on be said about by James that rain didn't come, but that we'd be about prayer. And it alludes to that as well, that he was able to call down uh, from heaven itself rain. All this imagery, take it to be comprehended that during the days of this period between Christ leaving and his return, that the church is to be the witness for God. These are, are to be understood as one, that is the church is to be the witness for God. For who else is to, to be the witness ultimately? Yes, you as individuals, me as an individual, I go out, but it is the church who is the Lord who has been at work in building and sustaining and uplifting and carrying through all these years and Till the Christ comes again. So we need to understand that this 1260 day period between Christ's first coming, uh, leaving and in his return. God's going to vindicate his word. Just as these were oil and balm and they would call down fire from heaven. These were God's spokesmen that he sustained. And he's doing the same thing now with the church. We must proclaim Christ in the world. That's what the church is to be about. We're to be the witnesses. And the beauty of what's being described here is that the Lord is the one who is, who is sustaining the church. Sometimes as pastors, we think we're the ones sustaining it or starting it or doing all these things. It's not us. It's ultimately the Lord. There's great encouragement for ministers, but but also for elders and, and for people who go to church and say, wow, 
And I have to confess. And why did the pastor stick that one in there? It's hard to be your people. You've called us to be the church and to fulfill the mission of Jesus. Know that these images that are found there in 4 to 6, 4, 5, and 6, really are just to uplift you, to say, keep on, church, because I'm the one that's upholding the church. But then he introduces something else. It's not just this beautiful picture all the time. Guys stand up and preach. Everything's going to be great. There's this beast. That's the third thing I want us to see in this point as we're driving home the point of God's the one who's directing the proclamation of his word. You go look at verses 7 to 10. No sooner than, than he's saying the church is to be the spokesman for me and the church is going to stand and be marvelous and great. This witness that is to go forth with boldness and confidence that I try to do each week, morning and evening, to proclaim Jesus. And you read this thing that happens there in seven, this beast, this antichrist figure, that one who's against Jesus, one whose forces are always opposed to the church and against the testimony of Christ. He's permitted. Did you hear my word there? He's permitted. He's on a leash. He's God, Satan. He's not running free. He's on a leash. And God has permitted him to come down and kill the two witnesses. You're going, but wait a minute. I thought that you said the two witnesses of the church. What do you mean? That makes no sense. It was interesting as I thought about this. Because every society from the time that our Savior left has been opposed to the church and it would appear in many instances throughout the history of the church that she died. Talking to the president and his wife as we hosted uh, the, the, the president from Geneva College as the Genevans were here on Friday night and how they, uh, their denomination had sent missionaries into China before the Great War. And then they were all kicked out. And they had no idea what became of the church because there had begun a, a, a vibrant church, but missionaries were expelled from the nation. You're like, the church sure looks dead. Looks like the beast killed it in China. But then they have, in the last few decades, come to realize there's a, a larger denomination than the denomination that they're a part of here in the United States of America. And you go, no, it's not dead. But it sure looks like it. You think the church is dead? Yeah. What about the church there in the, in the promised land that many go to visit? Or Turkey? Wow, that was the place where Paul did his ministry. And the church was growing and then the beast killed it. Scotland, where this denomination comes from, it's a pagan place. Nobody goes to church there. It appears dead. Do you get the imagery of what's happening here? That God permits the beast to uh, do that which appears to be death. And yet... It's only an appearance because what does the text say that after this occurs, 
they were killed and they're laid in the city and all these, uh, they were laid in the street and all these cities representing really all the cities of the world. Uh, uh, Jerusalem, where it's talking about the Lord was crucified. There he laid uh, these, these, the, the witness of the church for three and a half days. Again, uh, the language of this time period uh, was not like three and a half years. It was for a short season, just three and a half days. And there are those who are rejoicing. We've killed the church. We've killed the church. And that's what the Muslims are doing in lands throughout the world. That's what people around the world are doing when the church is dead. They're saying, yes, we've put it out of our country. Whether it's Russia, you pick the nation that has occurred in the history of the world that we live in. It's happened time and time again where the church has existed and then it's been killed, at least by appearance. And then, after the three and a half days, God entered them, a breath of life from God. And they stood up on their feet. And you begin to think about this. And there's great fear that fell upon those who saw it. It was God who gives seasons of revival. It's God who is superintending the declining of the church and allowing the beast to do his work that ultimately is to bring glory to God. You begin to go, this is God who stands and guards his church and when it looks like it's dead, he will at times blow life into it and it comes again alive. And that's what we cry out to God for revival. We can't put it on a sign out front and say we're having revival next week. Only God from heaven can come down and breathe life into that which is dead. She began to see that which God does is the one who himself is, is directing the church's proclamation. One nation it declines and then Africa now sending missionaries to America and they are becoming the great growth uh, evangelical Christian nation uh, uh, continent in the world actually. Well, I think America is so special. God's like, well maybe not right now. Maybe our Africa is. He's the one that is doing all his purposes until the second trumpet or the seventh trumpet sound. All this is to be understood in these ways. Because you see then in verse 12 what happens, the last point under how God is directing and superintending the ministry of the church. Because it comes to a period where the church's witness ends. Because you notice what happens in verse 12 there as you, you look and you read it and you go, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, to them, just the two witnesses to them. Come up here again to the church. They went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. And you began to see in verse 12, let me make it very clear. There is no secret rapture of the church. And you maybe read that. Some of your friends might have influenced you with that thinking. Because look at their enemies. What does it say? Their enemies are there watching them. The church is being brought up. And the enemies are looking at the church going up to heaven itself. 
don't believe there's going to be a secret rapture, dear people of God. And then we began to see the final disaster. Many earthquakes. They're filled with terror. They're, they're having to confess and grit their teeth at this point that they gave glory to God. Jesus told us that all will give glory to God one day. Some will bow the knee and worship Him. Others will be rejected because they never worshiped Him in this life. But that's what they're doing right here. The rest were terrified and they gave glory to God in heaven. They didn't go up to heaven. They remained. And so you just see what I described here is the span from A.D. 30 to the conclusion of time. Take it that way. Don't be led astray by so many that would have you to read the book chronologically. This is just another way of John showing a different angle on the whole story of that which is between the coming, the coming, the second coming of Christ and when he left. And so, dear people of God, we need to know it's God himself as we are of the church that he himself is, is sustaining it and he's making it go up here and down over here. It looks dead and then this looks dead and this comes to life. It's not methods. Though the world in our American world thinks you got to do methods and now make the church grow. If you have that view, it's not a biblical view. God's the one who, who lets the beast go and, and when he does, he, he, he gives the appearance, does the evil one in destroying a church that is the broader church, particularly in nations and people groups. And then the other ones rise up somewhere else. How helpful it is for us to see that the church's testimony is being sustained by God, but it's going to come to an end. Which drives us to our last point. God is going to provide a great reward for his church. Because what happens there, the second woe is past, and behold, the third, third will soon come, and then 15, the seventh trumpet, or the angel blew his trumpet. There's this loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdoms of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. You begin to see that this angel himself, this mystery that has been withheld, is now blowing the trumpets. And this last trumpet that sounds for the remainder of this whole chapter gives us a picture of actually what's going on. And so I want you to do this. It's hard for when you're reading scripture uh, even when you're watching TV, but can you imagine for a moment that 12 to 14 are happening at the same time 15 to 19 are happening? Okay, so that's what's taking place. There's this loud voice and they've been called up and then the enemies are, are seeing all this destruction that begins to take place. But then there is 15 to 19. And so we watch the end of the church's ministry there from 12 to 15, and they depart into glory, and then the judgment begins. The judgment, the final judgment of God. We've already talked about there's been judgment along the way, but this is the final judgment of God. Begins there in 12 to 14. But at the same time, in 15, we see it, this vantage point from heaven. The angel has blown the trumpet, and the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of the Lord. The kingdom, the church has become the kingdom of our Lord in glory. 
You began to comprehend that. You began to meditate on it. And you were back in the throne room of God, just as we were back in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. And the 24 elders are there. And what are they doing? They're falling down and they're worshiping God. As you think about this picture, this scene in heaven, the work on earth is done for the church. It's been completed. And then listen to what they're doing in heaven. 17. I just have to read it. If this doesn't send some chills down you, read it again until such time it does. We give thanks to you because this is going on in heaven. This is what you're going to be doing. If you're a follower of Christ, this is what you're going to be doing. All your loved ones who've left, this is what they're doing. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath has come and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great. Kings and peasants are seated in heaven together singing these things about God for this is what is being sung of him. And as beautiful it is, what a day that will be. And sadly enough, way too many people don't have this language when you ask them, what do you want to do in heaven? Oh, I want to see old so-and-so, my good buddy. I'm not so sure you're really going to care, quite frankly. Those you love most here on earth. That we may see them, but what we're going to be doing is giving thanks to Lord God Almighty there with the elders. That's why you should want to go to heaven. Because you're going to see Jesus. You're going to sing His praises. Because He's going to call up His church And so I think it's important on this occasion as we finish out this point. I need to ask you here, the final woe is coming. When that trumpet sounds, will you think of yourself and say, you know, I've been wearisome this whole life. And and I really meant it when I confessed it earlier. And, And I... I'm, I'm glad that the trumpet has sounded. I'm, I'm ready to go home. I, I've combated sin for long enough. I'm ready to go home. I'm tired of running the race. I'm ready to go home. I no longer need to walk by faith. I will see Jesus. Is that your thinking when the trumpet sounds? I pray that it is. Or when you hear that trumpet, will it be the signal of the greatest shock in your life? Because it will be for you the beginning of an eternity of bitter regret. What is it for you? What is it for you? I pray for all in this room that you are eager to receive that crown of glory and be in heaven forever and eternity.
And so as the church, we're on mission. And we can get discouraged, but let us remember that our Lord is guarding us and He is keeping us. And He has called us to proclaim His glories in the gospel. And He's doing what He will. And at times the church may look dead, but He's going to revive it when He wants, how He wants, where He wants. But let us always, as the church, keep an eye on our heavenly reward just to come. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, the emotions that pour forth, I know that they are from a sense of uh, unworthiness. And all of us gathered here have that sense, and yet we who have put our trust in Christ have confidence that, yes, we long to go home. We're tired of sinning. We're tired of this race of perseverance. And so, Lord, may it be that when the final trumpet sounds, the third woe comes, that we will look with eager anticipation. And I pray for anyone who's not done business with you by the blood of the Lamb, for what a treacherous day that will be for those outside of Christ. May your word sink deep into our souls for our good and for the good of the church. We bless